Is God alone enough when life falls apart? Is God alone enough when life falls apart? That's the title of this morning's message. Title is actually a question. Not a theoretical question, but a question whose answer should profoundly impact our practical lives. See, none of us are exempt from facing disappointments and hardships in life. Yes, the degrees of suffering varies from person to person. For some of you here today, the suffering not only seems to be non-stop, but the intensity keeps increasing. You feel cornered, discouraged, and even in deep despair, you're struggling just to get through the day, sometimes just to get through the next 15 minutes. So for folks like you, this question definitely is not a theoretical question. It is a question that hits very close to home. Rest of you, you might be in a relatively better situation. But even if that's the case, the question is still a relevant one. Why? Because sooner or later, you may find yourself facing this type of a situation where your life seems to be falling apart. What will you do then? How will you handle the heartache? Plus, as believers, we are called to encourage others going through suffering in a way that conforms to the scriptures. So having some awareness of this issue will help us to be better counselors. Obviously, the subject of suffering and trying to make sense of it is a very broad one. Simple answers just don't cut it. There are no cookie-cut answers. But that does not mean we can shy away from this subject either. God calls us to reflect about suffering, to talk about it, because he wants to help us grow in our understanding. And that's why um, he's given us a record of suffering in the Bible so that we can learn and respond to it in a way that both glorifies him and builds us up. And I, my hope and prayer is that if this message even accomplishes that to a small extent, to help us to view suffering and respond to it in a biblical way, I would be eternally grateful to God. I've chosen one man as an illustration when it comes to this soul-searching question. Is God alone enough when life falls apart? Believers throughout the ages, including you and I, owe much to this one man who went through suffering so horrendous, I don't think it would be a stretch to say next to the God-man, Jesus Christ himself, he was the one who suffered the most, even though his suffering is still way, way below the suffering of the Son of God. Well, I'm tempted very much to say it's the Apostle Paul who suffered so much for the gospel. I slightly lean on saying that it's that godly man of old, the man of whom, about whom God himself said these words, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Some of you, you know who I'm referring to, the godly man, Job. Job. Imagine God himself saying, none on earth like him, blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. That's the ultimate standing a person can have while on earth. 
words of approval from the Lord God, the King of the universe himself. And despite having this testimony, it was this very same man who would lose everything, including his very dignity, and suffer tremendously, not just for a few hours or for a few days, but for months. For those not familiar with the book of Job, let me give you a little background of what happened to this man of whom God spoke so highly of. By the way, this message is by no means a survey of the book of Job. That would be a different way to uh, do the survey. But I'm looking at this book. We'll be surveying portions of this book, but I'm looking at it from the perspective of trying to answer that question. Is God alone enough when life falls apart? So turn with me to the book of Job chapter 1, page 717, if you're using the church Bibles here. If you don't have one, pick up a copy from the desk there. Page 717, Job 1. The very first three verses speak not only of uh, uh, Job's godly character, a character that God himself approved of later in verse 8, but also about his family and his status in the society. Job 1, beginning in verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the East. That's Job, greatest man among the people of the East. Verses 4 and 5 speak of his role as a godly father and how he constantly interceded for his children. But in verse 6, the story takes a turn. We're introduced to the devil himself, the accuser of God's people, the person known as Satan. And in a strange turn of events, we see God himself bringing up Job, the one he certified as a godly man, to Satan. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan immediately pounces upon the opportunity and accuses Job as one who fears God because of the good things he had going for him. Look at verses 9 and 10. Does Job fear God for nothing? Asked Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. In other words, this was Satan's accusation. Job's piety, God, is because of his prosperity. His godliness is because of the gold he has. But there is a deeper issue than that. He is actually accusing God. How so? Saying, yes, God, Job is a godly man. One who fears you. But that's because you have given him much. He worships you because of what he's getting in return, fame and prosperity. In other words, God, you have to bribe people in order to have them worship you. Take away the blessings. People will turn their backs on you and Job is no different. That's what he said in a sense in verse 11. But now, 
Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now you would expect God to say, I can't do that. This man who fears me. Is that what God did? Did he? The verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And verses 13 through 19 talk about how Job in one single day lost all his possessions and more devastatingly loses all ten children on the same day. All because of Satan's evil acts. But keep in mind, Satan is not the sovereign one here. God was still in control. Satan could only act within the boundaries God had set. Take away what he has, but don't put a finger on him. Please not yet. Notice Job's response when he's lost everything. Verse 20 on. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's not blaming God. What a response. Lost everything, still worships God. Bows down, worships God. Story goes on. Once again, chapter 2, we read about God speaking highly of Job. Look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. It's very important. But God is saying here, similar to what he said earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, but here God says something else. Notice the last part of verse 3. You incited me to ruin him without any reason. In other words, God himself says Job's affliction was not part of any specific sin or sins from his side. That's very important to remember, especially later when we look how his friends accused him. You are suffering because you sinned. God says here clearly, Job's suffering is not because of any fault of his. And it's also important to remember not all suffering is a result of sin. Not all suffering is a result of sin. We live in a fallen world. Nobody is exempt from suffering. Yes, there are some sufferings as a result of sin. No doubt about it. But not all suffering is a result of sin. Satan still won't let go. He continues to accuse Job's godliness. This time, notice what he does. He's accusing Job of being faithful to God because God protected his health. God, Job would trade everything he has to protect himself. He'll even be willing to lay his children on the altar as long as his skin is protected. Look at verses 4 through 8. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all that he has for his own life. 
But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Again, God's putting boundaries there. I repeat this because there's a line of teaching that says any suffering, only Satan is in control. God is absent. That is false teaching. God is always the sovereign one. If he ceases to be sovereign, he abdicates the throne as God. That's impossible. Again, Satan had to operate within boundaries. Notice what Satan did as soon as he got the permission. Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, top to bottom. Top to bottom. The man was hit. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. City dump. That's where he's sitting. Verse 3 of chapter 1 ended with the greatest man. Here now he's brought low. How quickly life changed for Job. Everything lost. His children, his possessions, and now his health. And to top it off, his wife comes along to say, verse 9, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. What is Job's response? He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble in all this? Job, if I can add, still did not sin. Words still I'm adding, but Job still did not sin in what he said. The chapter ends with verses 11 through 13, talking about three of his friends coming from far to grieve with him. The best ministry possible that they rendered to him was the first seven days. They shut their mouth, just wept along with him. Sometimes that's the best counsel we can give. The ministry of silent presence. Not saying we should not say anything, but sometimes that's the best and the most important thing to do. So that's the situation of Job at the end of chapter 2. Now you may ask a legitimate question. If Job is such a godly man, as God himself said, what really was the purpose of his suffering? Why would God put him through so much? The answer to that lies in the question I posed earlier. Is God alone enough when life falls apart? Or let me personalize it and apply it to Job. Would God alone be enough for Job when his life fell apart? When we answer that, it will help us to answer what we must do when our own lives fall apart. Or for those of you who are right now feeling that your life is falling apart. And with that lengthy introduction, let's pray and ask our Lord to help us walk the journey that Job walked centuries ago and learn what he would learn at the very end. Because therein lies the question, therein lies the answer to the question, is God alone enough when life falls apart? Father, I acknowledge my tremendous limitation when it comes to this complex subject of suffering. Protect my lips from saying anything that would dishonor you or mislead 
people. Set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over my lips. Please help us all to understand the purpose behind this particular aspect of suffering. Apply this question deep into our own hearts and help us with the help of your spirit to respond in a way that would both glorify you and build us up and cause us to worship you all the days of our lives. I cannot accomplish anything with my words. I fully understand that. I submit to your spirit. May he completely take control over my mouth and over all of our hearts. Only, only in that way, Jesus our Lord would be glorified. In his name and for his glory I pray. Amen. You know, often pastors have been found guilty of not preparing their congregation to suffer well. That's a true charge to a great extent. I learned early in my ministry from, I think it was an old Puritan, uh, I just don't remember who, uh, Puritan writer, uh, who said that pastors should prepare their people to suffer well. Should prepare their people to suffer well. What he meant, I think, was that faithful preaching involves frequent reminders to believers about the reality of suffering and the need to have a biblical response to it when it comes. In other words, we should not be surprised when suffering comes. Prepare your people to suffer well and also to die well. Suffering and that too relentless suffering is not a favorite subject for the church at large, especially the church in the western part for sure. Even when it comes to music, we don't often sing songs of lament. But that one full book that's given to us, the Psalter, has so many psalms of lament. Why do I? What's, what's the problem with that? Because we have given ourselves so much to numbing any effects of suffering because deep inside, we want to have a relatively comfortable life. But that does not work well, does it? Why do I say it? Because when suffering or disappointment comes, and they do come, we see many professing believers given to deep despair and a sense of hopelessness. D.A. Carson, in his excellent book, How Long, O Lord, writes this. One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. So let's give the subject of evil and suffering a, a little bit of time today as we work our way through the life of Job. One of the rich and remarkable truths we find in the Bible in general is its plain and straightforward teaching on suffering. The Bible does not give the record of suffering as an intellectual exercise. Instead, it records the experience of people who suffered much and also gives us a record of what they learned from their suffering. Believers, I'm talking about. For example, 
Jacob experienced much suffering because of failing to trust God and taking shortcuts and constantly scheming to get his way. No wonder, as he was nearing the end of his life, he said these words while standing before Pharaoh. The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. Genesis 47 and verse 9. The New Living Translation puts it in a more vivid manner. I have traveled this earth for 130 hard years. His own, his own words, his life was hard. Why? Because of his own sinful choices. On the other hand, take his son Joseph. He too suffered much. But it was not for his sin. It was because God was preparing him for a greater work. In talking to his brothers who betrayed him, Benjamin was not there at that time, was not included in that betrayal. The other 10, in Genesis 50 verse 20, this is what he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Because God took Joseph ahead, prepared him so that he could bring the people into Egypt and protect them from dying due to starvation so that the Israelite nation could be kept intact so that the Messiah would eventually come through them. So you have two kinds of suffering here. Suffering for sin, that's Jacob, and Joseph suffering for being prepared for a greater work. But as I mentioned earlier, Job's case was neither. He didn't suffer for his sin and neither did he suffer for a greater work, at least from what we can read in the scriptures. That's what makes Job's suffering unique. He could not understand why he was going through that suffering, especially the scope, the extent of this suffering. Why so much? I don't understand. Listen to some of his own words of lament. That way, it was at least to a small extent, we can enter into his suffering. First of all, notice his cry in Job 3.3, 3, where he wishes he wasn't born. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. In other words, if his birthday was removed from God's calendar, he would have never been born. But since that day was not blotted out, he longed to have been stillborn at the time of his birth. Job chapter 3 verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? God, why did you even create me? That day could have been blotted out. But you didn't do that. You brought me into this world. Why did you not bring me as a stillborn child? You didn't do that. Since none of that happened, God, why don't you take my life now? Job chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain. Look at that phrase, my joy in unrelenting pain. What's the joy in unrelenting pain, Job? That I had not denied the words of the Holy One. There's a man still fears God. Job was clearly aware that God was the one who was ultimately behind his suffering. See, one thing with the Old Testament is the saints never 
had any issue with God's sovereignty. They never had a problem with that. Job knew it was God who was behind the whole thing. Keep in mind, what's happening in the heavenly realms between Job and, I mean, between God and Satan, Job was unaware to the very end. You and I are, have this glimpse. Put yourself in Job's shoes as we're walking this journey. He's clueless. But he knows God is in control. Job 6 verse 4 says, The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Everything is against me from God. And his suffering was a prolonged suffering. Job chapter 7 verse 3. I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. But notice how he takes his Christ directly to God. Job chapter 7 verses 12 through 16. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. Suffering was intense. And what added to that was he didn't understand. What sin did I do that I'm suffering so much? He doesn't know, but he keeps going back to God again and again. Look at Job chapter 7 verse 20. If I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do. Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. He's pleading with God here. If I have sinned, show me my sin. Please, God, show me. Excruciating when you don't know why you're going through so much suffering. Waiting without reason is hard. It's very hard. Let's continue to read more of his desperate cries. Job chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. Notice what he says, verse 12. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me without pity. He pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. Job 19 verses 8 through 10. Again he says, He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. The cycle of Christ repeat. Look one more time how he cried directly to God. Job chapter 30 verses 20 to 23. Job chapter 30 verse 20. I cry out to you God but you do not answer. I stand up but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly With the might of your hand, you attack me. 
You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. He's crying out to God again and again. Heaven feels like brass. Nothing penetrating. Seems like a cold silence. Cold silence. Some of you who are married or even not even married, you may have experience in relationships. Someone suddenly stops talking. You don't know. Saying, give me the reason. The coldness. But here's God. God is cold. Or appears to be cold. In Job's situation, distant. He's crying. Abandoned by God is his experience. But Job's suffering was even more intense because not only was he abandoned by God in his experience, he was abandoned by people close to him. Go back to Job 19. I'm going to read verses 13 through 19. Notice how he's crying out, heaven above I feel has abandoned me. But even here, people around me have abandoned me. Verse 13. Again, he recognizes God's sovereignty even over that. He God has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. A spouse, closest one who should be your greatest comforter during times of trouble. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the one that inflicts the greatest pain. In those cases, one would tend to lean on friends, good friends for support. Job did have three friends. They came from far. Had good intentions. But after the first week, they turned out to be those who were inflicting even greater pain. Notice how they attacked him with their words. I'm going to read just a few examples. But keep in mind, God had already pronounced Job as blameless. And his suffering was not because of anything that he did. Keep that in the back of your mind and listen to these passages. Job chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Friend number 1, a fellow by the name Eliphaz. Verse 7 and 8, he says, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? There were the upright ever destroyed. As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Implication, Job, you're guilty. You're not upright. God said, blameless and upright. You're not upright. You're one who plows evil. God said, shuns evil. Job, this is why you're suffering. You're an evil man. Friend number two, fellow by the name Bildad. Job chapter 8, verse 20. Job 8, 20. This is what he tells Job. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Implication, Job, God has rejected you because you are not blameless. You're an evildoer. Here's my man. Blameless. God said. Job 11. 
verses 4 through 6, friend number 3, Zophar. This is what he says. Verse 4. You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Meaning, Job, your sins were so much that even God couldn't keep count. My goodness. And look at chapter, the same chapter, verse 11. Surely he, meaning God, recognizes deceivers and when he sees evil, does he not take note? Job, you're a deceiver. God has finally taken note and that's why you're going through what you're going through. The three kept piling words upon words. Same cycle continues. Their thought is, Job, godly people don't suffer. You're suffering because you've sinned terribly. Confess your sins and you will never suffer. You will have nothing but blessing. Suffering Job did not need this piled on him. Hurting words, especially when you're suffering, do crush the soul, don't they? And some people, they're relentless. They keep hammering cruel words upon cruel words. And that's why we, we find Job pleading with his friends to stop attacking him with words. Look at Job 6, verse 14, right at the outset. This is what Job says after Eliphaz attacks him with his mouth. Job chapter 6, verse 14 Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Meaning if you're really God-fearer, you will be a good friend. Kind friend. Kind friend doesn't mean that we don't talk about sin. There is a place to talk about sin. But in this context, we can see clearly that is not what the friends did. Job 6 verse 25, again Job is pleading, Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do your arguments prove? Because they are not truthful words. Job chapter 6 verses 28 through 30, But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern Malice. Pleading with them. I need comfort from you people. You're heaping abuse upon abuse. And come down to chapter 19. Verses 21 through 22. Again, you can, you can see how crushed Job is and how he's pleading with them. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Some people get so much joy in hurting others. Despite all his pleading, they still kept piling accusation upon accusation on him. Look at just one more passage, chapter 22, verses 4 through 11. Notice the Cruelty of Eliphaz. Verse 4. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land and 
an honored man living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Can you imagine how this must have been for Job? Family gone. The wife who alone was left did not even want to come near him. Far away friends come in person, but they came just to attack him. No wonder Job was fed up with the so-called comforters. And this is what he said. I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on Arguing Job chapter 16 verses 1 and 2. Miserable comforters. Now you may ask, why were these friends so relentless in accusing Job? Very important thing to understand. that Why were they attacking Job like this? I believe the reason lies in their own theological prepositions. They, they had certain thoughts. Hey, these are the things. Concrete. They're coming from that angle. What is it you may ask? It's this, Job. If a person suffers, it's because they've sinned. So your suffering is a clear proof. You must have sinned. And since your suffering is so great, your sins must have been very great. So confess your sins. Get into God's good books. Then you will prosper. That's their belief system. See, theirs was a commercial view of faith. There's an old saying, all this rice Christians. In some parts of the world, people follow Christ because they might get rice. All right, that's that's the commercial view of the faith. In other words, Job, if you do what is right, you will escape all pain and receive only blessings. Here you find traces of the early prosperity gospel preaching. If obeying God does not guarantee a life free from suffering, then what's the point of obeying God? That's their thinking. And when you have such a view, you have only two responses or two options when it comes to suffering. Option number one, blame God for letting bad things happen to you and have nothing more to do with him. That was his wife giving him that option. Option number two, that these friends give to him is bargain with God. Somehow try and convince him to change the circumstances and things will get back to prosperity. But guess what? Both those options if Job had taken that would be falling right into Satan's trap. He did not curse God to the very end though he spoke certain things he shouldn't have and neither did he try to buy his way back into blessings. He was simply seeking to understand what it was that did bring him such a great suffering. You see, Job was focused on his relationship with God. His friends, their focus was only on what they can get from God. Blessings. In their minds, they're thinking, if Job is right, in that he did lead a pure life and he's still suffering, what happened to Job could happen to us also. We could also pursue a pure life and that still wouldn't guarantee freedom from suffering. They couldn't bear such a thing. Theirs was a focus for a life completely free from all suffering and only blessing. 
Yes, they did say some things that were right, but they applied it to the wrong person, Job. And in some ways, what they said, they thought they were protecting the character of God. But in some ways, they were actually saying wrong things about God himself. How do we know that? Because God himself said that. I hate to go to the end of the book, but in Job 42 verse 7, this is what God himself says when everything was done about the friends. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, seems like he was the oldest among the three. Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. See, despite his suffering and certain things Job spoke that were not right, that's why he said, I repent, I retract my words. But overall what God saw was Job's heart. Job didn't speak evil of me. You folks spoke evil. You didn't speak the truth about me. So Job's friends, even if their intentions were good, were clearly wrong for the most part with their words against Job and God himself. Another man, Elihu, later joins in piling up his accusations against Job. Chapters 32 through 36, you see, is a long speech, but just look at chapter 34. It's a couple of verses I want to point out to you. He seems to have been a little better than the three. God doesn't bring Elihu in this. He said only three friends, but look at chapter 34, verses 7 through 9. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked, for he says, there is no problem profit in trying to please God. Look at verse 11. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. That's God. God's repaying. God is not one who can do evil, he says. God is repaying. So Job is getting what he deserves. He's reaping what he sowed. He's an evil man. Evil man. But Job to the very end did not deny his integrity. Because he was truly a man of integrity. Sometimes we see people, they're clearly sinning, but they don't want to acknowledge the sin. They keep saying, I've done nothing wrong. My hands are clean. My hands are clean. The adulterer wipes his mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. But that's not Job here. He maintains his integrity. Look at chapter 27, verses 2 through 5. He, he, he tells his friends, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Now Job is not pleading sinlessness. He's not saying I'm not going to bargain my way back into blessings. I don't know what I have sinned. You're telling me I did all this. He'll talk about why that's not true. We will look at that briefly. But he says, you know, I cannot deny my integrity. And then he gives an example of righteous conduct. Job chapter 29. Look at verses 11 through 17. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. And those who saw me commended me because I rescued the poor who cried out for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. 
I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the cause of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. And in chapter 31, he goes on to talk about how he cared for justice, how he was faithful to the marriage covenant, how he cared for the poor, how he didn't put his trust in gold or silver, how he didn't turn to false gods. He says, I didn't do that. Why? Why, Job, did you stay away from evil and did what is right in the sight of the Lord because of this? Because of this. Look at chapter 31, verse 4. He lived in the light of God watching his every move. Does he not see my steps and count my every step? Godly people live in the presence of God. God is watching. Look down in verse 14, chapter 31. What will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? He kept that in his mind that one day I'll have to give an account to God. He lived today in the light of that coming day. Called to account. Look at verse 23. For I dreaded destruction from God and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Things, the fear of God kept him from sinning. He lived with a godly fear. That's why Job says, I did these things that the Almighty calls me to do, helping people, not defrauding, because one day I will give an account. He was defending his integrity. That's why he said, I cannot understand the magnitude of my sufferings. What did I do that requires so much of suffering. That's why Job wanted a face-to-face meeting with God to understand his suffering. In Job 13, verse 3, he says, you know, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. And verses 20 through 24 in the same chapter, Job 13, this is what he says, only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? He's pouring out his heart. Deep cries. Those of you who've suffered for long in the dark, can identify. Job did get his answer, didn't he? God did speak to him. But when God spoke, do you know what was Job's response? Let's find out. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you? Says when I laid the earth's foundation. Tell me if you understand. In other words, what God is doing is this. God's not giving an answer to Job's suffering. Why you're going through this suffering. What God's doing is this. Job, I'm going to describe you my great power. And my great wisdom that spans two chapters, chapter 38 and 39. He recounts one 
powerful creative act after another. And by doing that, what did God accomplish or intend to accomplish by helping Job to understand more of the God who created him and of the God whom he worshipped? And when God finally asked Job, okay, Job, you call me to court to defend my actions against you. Here I am. Lay out your charges. After he described who he is, listen to Job's response. Job chapter 40 verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. That's his first response. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I am unworthy. I put my hand over my mouth. That's it. But God continued in revealing his sovereign power over all things by pointing more of his creative acts. Chapter 40 and 41. And in the end, Job was utterly broken. Smashed to pieces more now than during his time of suffering. Look at chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Comes back again to affirm and acknowledge God's sovereignty. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That word repent also has the idea of I, I shrink back. Take back what I said. I retract. So what was God's answer to Job's questions on suffering? Was this Job? I want you to know the kind of God you worship. That's why I'm giving you greater revelation of myself. It was not a complex treatise on suffering. It was a greater revelation of himself. Job, you have a lot of questions. The answer is, I am. I am is your answer. The eternal self-existing God. Explanations is not what we need the most when it comes to suffering. Greater revelation of God himself. The I am is the answer. Job never asked God, now that I got you, let me ask my questions about my suffering. He doesn't ask that, does he? Doesn't ask that at all. Put my hand on my mouth. I know you can do all things. Your purposes cannot be thwarted. I submit. I submit. He was just content with a greater understanding of God. That's the lesson God wanted Job to learn and through his experience wants us to learn. That God alone is enough for his children. But that won't be our response if God alone is not enough during times of non-suffering, times when things are going good. In other words, the question that 
we need to be posing to ourselves is that do we pursue God at all times for who he is or is our obedience a thin veneer masking has some kind of a religiosity to it but it's a thin veneer masking our selfishness to get only good things from God to bless our prayers to solve all our problems to keep us from pain and sorrow put it another way do we obey God because we truly love him and that he is indeed worthy of our obedience worthy to be loved no matter how much pain and suffering we may have to endure that's the issue you want to find out if your relationship with God is sincere like Job or shallow like his friends it's easy how do you respond when you lose some blessings be it a job money a relationship loved ones passing away or even losing your health job had to lose everything until all that was left for him was god alone to find out what faith he had is it would have been different if he lost some of his possessions some of his children got 10 let go of 1 2 3 those are problem children he lost everything but he had to lose everything to find out what he was really made of that's why all of us owe a lot to job a lot to job lost it all but in the end he was vindicated by god himself that's the most important thing that's the most important thing. god himself approved of his faith as a genuine faith despite all the questions he had he said right we read verse 7 earlier chapter 42 You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant. My goodness, what a beautiful title as my servant. Job has my man, my woman. They always speak well of me from the heart. The New Testament affirms Job as a genuine servant of God. James tells us, you've heard of Job's perseverance he says earlier we count as blessed those who have persevered you've heard of job's perseverance and have seen what the lord finally brought about the lord is full of compassion and mercy james chapter 5 verse 11 full of compassion and mercy job was truly a man marked with genuine faith that's why he was able to persevere without knowing the reason which is the hardest of all sufferings we still see job expresses hope and faith in god a characteristic of all true believers listen to his own words i'll give you the references but don't turn to just listen i know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh i will see god i myself will see him with my own eyes i and not another how my heart yearns within me job chapter 19 verses 25 through 27 Old Testament believers did believe in the future physical bodily resurrection. Job clearly says it. Yet in my flesh, I will see God. Later in chapter twenty-three, verses ten through twelve, this is what he says. This is in the middle of his intense suffering. But he knows the way I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread What a rebuke when we suffer sometimes we don't even touch the bible 
How will we understand God more if we are away from the Bible? Suffering should lead us to devour the scriptures. It's your word that sustains me in my affliction. Psalm says, my soul is weary with sorrow. Sustain me according to your word. This is my comfort my affliction. Your promise preserves me. If your law had not been my delight in my affliction, I would have perished. It is good that I've been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119. Psalmist keeps going on and on about God's word becoming so precious because it is through his word he reveals himself. Job's faith was a genuine faith because it was a God-given faith. And a God-given faith says, God alone is enough, even when my life totally falls apart. You see, genuine faith does not need a bribe from God to love God. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. It loves and worships God for who He is, no matter how much pain He may permit in our lives. It sees this, this God of the Bible as a God who can be trusted even when nothing makes sense. Jacob went through his suffering because of his sin, yet God delighted in calling himself as what? The God of Jacob. That's the kind of God we have. Satan was wrong about Job and more importantly, absolutely wrong about God. God will be loved because he's worthy to be loved. His children treasure him more than the treasures he gives them. By faith, they believe with all their heart he is worthy of their wholehearted love and obedience, even if they have to walk this never-ending journey through the dark valley. Tears may unceasingly flow from their eyes, but they still say, I love you, Lord, for you are worthy. All I want is your presence and a greater knowledge of you. And if you and I have that kind of a faith, a faith that God in his great mercy has graciously given to us, like he gave Job, then we too would respond when we lose some or all of our blessings with the mindset that God alone is enough. Because unlike Job, we see God even more clearly, don't we? Because Job was pre-cross. We are post-cross. We have the privilege of seeing this God through the lens of the cross. The cross clearly shows us that God gave his only son, Jesus Christ, who endured his suffering much, much, much greater than Job could even comprehend for your sin and mine. To borrow the words of one writer, the cross is God's way of saying to us, my son was wounded to heal you. His nails sealed the promise of heaven for you. His tears drenched your suffering with meaning and hope and even joy. His blood bought you a family more than can be counted bound together by a love that cannot be measured. Jesus suffered to show us whatever we might suffer, we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, suffer well. All our sufferings are designed to say this one thing, my Jesus alone, it's the operator word, alone is enough when my life falls apart. Yes, life ended well for Job in the end. It may end well for us or suffering may never be 
eliminated from our lives, but we can still say Jesus is enough. The Lord never promised a life that's free of suffering, but he did promise his presence for those who treasure him above everything else. John Newton said this, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So if God sends suffering our way, he knows it is needful for his glory and for our good. Let's cling to him and never doubt his love. Listen, if Job, such a righteous man, a man of such integrity, suffered so much and yet found God alone was sufficient when his life fell apart, you and I, who are far from living that kind of a integrity-filled life, such kind of a blameless life, can we not be comforted when we go through deep suffering that Jesus, who died for ungodly sinners, those five words that Paul says in Romans 4, 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Should we not be more comforted that he alone is sufficient? If he's sufficient for eternity, is he not sufficient for this temporary pilgrimage? Yes, God alone is enough when life falls apart for those who are his children through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to always bless you. No matter what rejection, what suffering we face, you are worthy. You are sufficient. Help us to be students of the school of suffering and to learn that you are enough, Jesus. To be content with you. To be satisfied with you. Whether life is good. And often it is good. You give us many good things to enjoy. Thank you. But even when those things are taken away, help us to still bless you. It's a matter of time before you call us home. That's the beginning of unending, overflowing joy. But until then, we can rejoice even in the midst of our tears, sorrowful yet rejoicing. That's the paradox of the Christian life as you teach us through the Apostle Paul. Give us that strength. Help us to keep Pressing on with the help of your spirit. For apart from his work, we can do nothing. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for taking the darkness, suffering through the darkness, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that even though we may feel abandoned, we are never abandoned. You're there with us. Thank you.